Good morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. So glad that you're here this morning. Um, We're continuing in our series through the book of Ephesians. And y'all, today we come to the end of the chapter. And so we're going to be in chapter five next week. But I ask if you would turn there with me to Ephesians four. Uh, We're going to be looking at verses 25 through 31. And the theme of this chapter has been the new man. Paul told us to take off the old, renew our minds, and put on the new man. Have you ever said something like this before? Man, I feel like a new man. Have you ever said that? You know, sometimes it doesn't take a whole lot for us to say that. Maybe we just get some new clothes. We walk out of the store and we think, man, check out these threads. I look like a new man. It's the worst when you get a crick in your neck or a twinge in your back. And your day's just ruined, but you wake up the next day and that's gone. You say, oh man, I feel like a new man. Or maybe it's just you need that good night's sleep because you're so tired. You wake up, feel so much better. I'm a new man. And what do we say right after we say, I'm a new man? We say, man, I want to go play some tennis. I want to go work out in the yard. I want to go out on the town because the new man is ready for action. The new man is ready to live out his newness. And this is kind of where we left off last week. Remember, we talked about this process of becoming more and more like Christ. And if we do this, if we take off the old, we submit to God, we renew our minds and we put on the new, we can have a very powerful testimony to our communities if we look like Christ, if we live out the newness. And so many of us ask, well, how do we do that? And in this passage today, y'all, Paul tells us really practically, how do I live out the new man? And we see so much application and so much encouragement in this passage. Will you read with me Ephesians 4, 25 through 31? Excuse me, 32. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word. God, and I'm so thankful that you give us some application of the new man, Lord, just so that we can get a glimpse of what it means to live like Christ. So Father, I pray as we study this passage, God, you would guide us into your truth. You would protect us from error, from misunderstanding. God, each one of us, Lord, committing to your standard of living, recognizing that it is a possibility because it is a gift from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. This passage is a passage of application, of applying the new man to our lives. And sometimes, y'all, we struggle with applying the Bible to our lives. We struggle understanding. And then the next step is to apply, okay, this is what God said. How am I going to live that out in my life? I, I did a study with students several years ago, a thing called HEAR journals. And it was a way to study a passage of scripture, HEAR being an acronym, H-E-A-R. It was highlight, 
explain, apply, and respond. And I found out students had such a trouble with the A. They would read the passage, they would highlight some things that they liked. They would even try to sit there and figure out what it meant, but the application was very difficult. It's hard to get middle school and high school students to do anything but especially to apply scripture to their lives. And I think adults struggle with this as well. And the tip I gave them was when you write out an application, start with the verb. What is this passage asking you to do in your life? And you can tell that this is an application passage because of the verbs in this passage. Just just glance with me. He says, lay aside falsehood, great application. Speak truth to each other. Be angry, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down your anger. Don't steal, work hard. No unwholesome word proceeding from your mouth. And so this is just chock full of this application. And that's what we're looking for. A couple things I want you to notice about this uh, list of applications before we um, dive into them one by one is that they have to do with our relationship with each other. Living out the new man, living like Christ is really found in how we walk in our life, our lifestyle, how I operate with you. And Paul wants to see us be transformed from the inside out so that we treat each other differently and that we live with each other in harmony as an act of worship unto God who has saved us. And so we see him saying, hey, you wanna be like me, you treat others well. These are ethics or morals or applications that are talking about our relationship with one another. Another thing we see in this passage, y'all, is the contrast. He says, stop doing this, right? Take off the old in this regard and put on the new. When we studied Ephesians chapter two, we made a before and after picture. Do y'all remember that? We made two different graphs. We said before the the old man was, was dead and the new man has been made alive. And so as we go through this passage, we're going to do the exact same thing. We're gonna make a before and after picture in two different, what, this is what the old man does and this is what the new. The first one we see in this passage in verse 25 is that the old man is walking in falsehood, but the new man is called to speak in truth. Let's look at verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We take off falsehood and we put on truth. It's no wonder that Paul starts with this idea because he tells us a fundamental marking of the old man is deceit and a fundamental marking of our God is truth. Notice what he says in verses 22 through 24. He says, lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. He says, the old man is living a lie, but put on the new verse 24, which is like our God in the sense that it is created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. He's in the tactics of the, de- the devil. Your life before Christ was a life built on a lie. You've been rescued from that. You've been redeemed from that. So the way we operate in community together is we are people of the truth. We have to put on truth. Now, when we hear the word falsehood, we just think a lie. But notice that that's not the word that's used here. He doesn't say put, take off lying, but the two words that he uses in this passage is deceit and falsehood. Lying is intentionally misrepresenting the truth and deceit is trying to get other people to believe your lie, right? It's like arguing for your lie. Falsehood though is this umbrella term that can mean a lot of different things. Lying, deceiving, conning, fibs, fabrications, fables, and fiction, all of those things go under this one umbrella term, falsehood. 
As we go through these, this list today, I want us to ask the question also, is there a tendency in our culture to adopt an ethic that is under Christ's standard? And with lying, we do this all the time. Christ says, no lying. No lying, we walk in people of truth. But, but do we act, sometimes adopt this cultural idea that sometimes it's okay to lie? Sometimes it's okay to participate in falsehood. To lie if it'll hurt somebody's feelings to hear the truth. <laughs> That's what my notes say. It's crazy. We shouldn't lie. We should always tell the truth unless if we're protecting someone or sheltering. We just tell a little white lie for that to happen. Some of us, maybe we operate in that. We live in the cultural standard instead of Christ's standard. Maybe we also believe it's okay to lie if it'll protect your reputation. These may be things we wouldn't even uh, admit to in our life with one another, but we privately practice them. If I can save face, if I can get out of this situation and still look good, then I will just lie to get out of it. A little bit of falsehood. It's not really that big of a deal. Paul says in this passage, it's a very big deal. We lay it aside because, because to participate in it is to participate in the old man. He says, lay aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of each other. Notice the reason given in verse 25, for we are members of one another. Don't miss this. Why do I have to be painfully truthful with you in every season and every situation in my life? Because we're connected and my sin is not an individual sin. If we're connected in the body, the consequences of my sin will spill over and splash onto you. We are members one of another. And for me to lie to you is to do harm to myself, to my family, and also to the body of Christ. We use this picture of Christ's church as the body. Imagine if my hand reached out and touched a hot stove. Would my hand know in and of itself that that was dangerous? Not really, because my hand needs other parts of the body. It needs my nervous system. It needs my brain to say, danger, get away from that. Imagine though if my brain decided one day not to tell the truth, then I would do great damage and great harm to the body. Why do we have to tell the truth with each other? Why are we people of light? Because we're connected, y'all. And so even when it hurts, even when it's painful, we have to be people of the truth. This is to live like Christ, lay off, take off falsehood, put on the truth. The second thing we see in this passage, y'all, is he says, take off sinful anger and put on peace. Verse 26 and 27, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Falsehood was this umbrella term that meant uh, no falsehood in any of its forms. But notice he actually qualifies and gives allowance for being angry. He says, be angry, just don't sin. And we got to understand this teaching of scriptures that anger inherently is not sinful. Because if it was sinful, then our God would sin, right? There is no sin in God, but God does get angry. We describe this anger as a righteous or a just anger that our God looks at a broken, sinful world. He sees the oppression in our world and he does get angry, but it is a righteous anger. Notice what he's saying here. He's saying it's okay to be angry. In fact, I would rather you be angry at sin than be accepting of sin. 
But being angry is never an excuse, no matter the situation. And no matter how righteous your anger is, it's never an excuse to act outside of God's commands. Never once be angry and yet do not sin. And then he tells us, what do we do instead? He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. I believe that these two things are communicating that we need to be people of peace. The idea of not letting the sun go down on your anger is this idea of, let's say you and I are in a relationship and the peace is broken and we're both very mad and there's this incredible conflict, but we just distance ourselves from each other. We don't resolve the conflict. Then what happens is bitterness has a chance to grow. Maybe you and I are as angry with each other, but we've, we've let things just fester. And so we actually come into a situation where the relationship is just as broken. It's not showing it on the outside. It's not manifesting that way, but we're very, very bitter. Ken Sandy in his book, The Peacemaker, talks about this idea, which is, which is really helpful for me. When we get into an angry situation, we become peace breakers. And if we don't resolve that conflict and we just let it sit, then we're bitter and we're peace fakers. And only God can has the power within us and, and he calls us to actually not be peace breakers or be peace fakers as so many opt for that option. Instead, we're called to be peacemakers to redemptively resolve the conflict so that relationships can be uh, maintained and redeemed and that the body can be healthy. So many of us, we just wanna settle for peace faking, amen? I don't talk to them anymore. I don't see them anymore. That's, that's good enough for me. That's not the call of God. How do we live life to be a peacemaker, not give the devil an opportunity for bitterness and broken relationships in our world? Well, I want you to just pause right there because we're gonna see at the end of the passage how we pursue peace with all people. We'll talk about that in just a second. Let's go to the next one that we see in verse 28. He says, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. We're called to take off theft and put on generosity. Take off theft and put on generosity. Now, I just need to tell you of something I had to repent of this week. I read this verse and I thought that it was take off theft, put on labor. Read the passage. That's what it says, right? He who steals must steal no longer, so take off theft, but rather he must labor. And so I saw it as, okay, here's, here's what he's calling us to do. He's calling us, hey, Protestant work ethic, right? Just go get a job. That that's the heart issue here. But y'all, it's something so much deeper. He says that there's a person who's living in the old man, they're stealing. They're taking for themselves. And so that person must labor. But there's a deeper shift from uh, used to steal for yourself, now to work for yourself. What's the deeper shift? It's someone who has a heart of generosity. They are laboring, but they're not laboring for themselves. Notice verse 28, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. The old man steals for himself. The new man works for the benefit of others. Do you see that? So many of us, we just want to stop with you, man. He says, no, that's not what this is about. He says, I want you to work hard. I want you to have a job. I want you to use your hands to provide for yourself, but also so that you would have an opportunity in your life to be generous with what God has given you. The new man lives a, in a spirit of generosity. Say, wow, God has given me spiritual blessings. He's also given me material blessings. And I'm gonna use those for his glory. I wonder, are we, are we, do we have jobs? and work hard 
And do we let that become a sense of pride for ourselves? Say, look at what I've built for myself. Or are we saying, wow, God has gifted me so that I can bless other people? The next one we see in this passage, y'all, is we take off slander and we put on grace. Verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. We take off slander and we put on grace. Don't see the word slander in this, in this verse, but we do in verse um, 31. This is what he's describing. It's, a, it's an unwholesome word that tears somebody down. We see the scriptures teach that you can know if somebody's operating in the old man or the new pretty quickly based on how they talk. Because from the heart, a man speaks. And are we using our tongue as a vessel of destruction or are we using it as a vessel of grace? Scripture is also very harsh on the tongue, right? It says it's a deadly poison. It's full of evil. Not talking about the tongue is inherently evil, but it represents our hearts that are full of evil. What's the cultural thing we say about um, not saying things that tear people down? Have you ever heard this before? If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. That's the cultural standard of, of just, just shut up. Just don't say anything. If you're tempted to tear somebody down, just fake peace, right? Be a peace faker and don't say anything. That's not the advice of Paul. He says, if you can't say anything nice at all, repent, take off the old, Renew your mind, put on the new, and speak with grace as to build somebody up. Church, something I've been convicted of this week in my own life is that the world does not need my silence. The world does not need my silence. They don't need me to fulfill my obligation toward God by being silent to a world. There are people who are walking there alone. They're depressed. They don't know the hope for the future that is in Christ. And they need us to use our tongues to give them grace. They need to hear the message of the gospel. Silence is not enough. There are people in your circles, in your world, who need you to be a vessel of grace in how you talk to them. Church, are we tearing people down? Are we being silent? Are we pursuing them with the message of the gospel? We got to put on the new because there are people who need to hear the grace of God and God wants to do that through you. We take off slander and we put on grace. It's a pretty heavy list, isn't it? Pretty lofty standard. I'm supposed to be a person of truth, pursuing people with peace, giving generously and showing grace to others, especially with my words. We're gonna round out this passage and I, and I just have two points that are kind of cement this graph and cement this idea in our lives in verses 30 through 32. And really the first one is what if we don't? What if we don't submit to this process of taking off the old and putting on the new? I'm talking about somebody who's a believer, somebody who has received the good news of the gospel and the Holy Spirit is inside them. What if I don't submit to sanctification? What if I don't put on the new? Paul tells us what happens in, in verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Make no mistake, this verse is talking about a believer, someone who is sealed by the Holy Spirit, but they're not submitting to sanctification. They're not taking off falsehood and putting on truth. They're actually walking in falsehood. And what happens when we do that? It says that we grieve the Holy Spirit. 
The word grief is, is, is a word that we use so much in the connotation in the situation of death, right? When someone dies, we, we grieve. But grief is an emotion that we experience that is so profound and so deep, but it doesn't just have to be death. It can be when uh, someone moves away and we don't get to see them anymore and that relationship changes. It could be when you love someone and they leave you. It could be when someone betrays you. And I think that's the one that God experiences when we don't submit to sanctification. We respond in faith to him and say, Lord, I I love you. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. The Holy Spirit comes inside of us. And then there are times we fail him and we choose to walk in the old man. And when we do that, we betray a God who has been so faithful to us and it causes him grief. The first point I have for you this morning is y'all, the new man needs to reciprocate Holy Spirit faithfulness. We have got to reciprocate Holy Spirit, faithfulness. Reciprocation is a word that uh, parents don't actually use when their kid goes to school for the first time, but they they teach them how to make friends and in relationships, and so they use this word. Anybody ever get that advice? It's like, hey, you walk into school and a little kid says, I like your backpack. Don't just walk away. Reciprocate the kindness. Say, hey, I like your shoes. Or if somebody says, what's your name? You don't just say, hey, I'm Liam, and then walk away. You, you ask, what's your name? And in a relationship, you've got to reciprocate, right? When I went out with Olivia, I think I liked her a whole lot more than she liked me. But thank God she reciprocated, right? And, and that ended out good. But for a healthy relationship to be there, both parties have got to reciprocate. And right here, we're talking about somebody who's not reciprocating the faithfulness that the Holy Spirit has given to them. So many of us, we actually read a verse like this and we ask the question, does this mean that someone can lose their salvation? And I want you to read the verse and read what it says and what it doesn't say. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It says, don't grieve the one who has sealed you. The verse does not say, don't grieve the Holy Spirit or he will leave you. And also in this verse, it's telling us who does the sealing. It is the Holy Spirit. We've already seen this word in Ephesians 1, verse 13. It says, in him, after you listen to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were vation, that until Jesus comes back, I am being preserved by the work of the Holy Spirit. And church, listen to me. The Holy Spirit holds on to me. I don't hold on to him. Because if it was up to me to grasp on to him by my works, I would have let go a long time ago. Praise God that while I may grieve the Holy Spirit, he is faithful to me and he seals me. And the call is for us to reciprocate this kind of faithfulness, to give this kind of faithfulness back to a holy God, to say, Lord, I know I'm going to fail you, but the intention of my heart, Father, is to be as faithful to you as you have been to me. I'm not going to live up to that standard, and I know I'm going to grieve the Holy Spirit. But y'all, his faithfulness is not an excuse for me to continue in sin. It is a motivation and a reason for me to fall on my face before holy God and say, God, even when I was a sinner, even when I didn't know who you were, God, you were, you were loving me, you were pursuing me. God, you had secured my salvation. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I wanna be as faithful to you as you've been to me. Paul says, don't grieve. He says, this is why we walk in the new man. We don't do it for our salvation because right? that would be a workspace gospel. We don't walk in the new man because we're afraid he's going to leave us. We don't do it for salvation. We do it from 
our salvation. This is the call of the believer to reciprocate Holy Spirit faithfulness. Finally and quickly, those last two verses, last point and we'll be done. The new man should reciprocate Jesus Christ's forgiveness. We should reciprocate Holy Spirit faithfulness and Jesus Christ's forgiveness. 31 and 32, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. I looked up the word reciprocate. I want to make sure I was using it right. <laughs> it can mean to give something back, and it can also mean to pay something forward. It means responding in kind. That can be to the person who first showed you the kindness or to someone else. Now, do I need to reciprocate forgiveness to God? He's forgiven me. Do I need to give that forgiveness back to him? No, because he hadn't done anything wrong. That's exactly right. And so the scriptures teach that the way I reciprocate God's forgiveness in my life is I show it to y'all. I show it to the world. I show it to other people liberally without reservation because Christ has forgiven me of so much. We see what Christ has done in the gospel. And we say, Lord, thank you so much. You've been so faithful to me. You've sealed me with the Holy Spirit. You've adopted me. You've given me redemption through the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood. Therefore, in my relationships with other people, here we come, full, full circle, I will be a peacemaker and I will forgive anyone who has wronged me. I will pay it forward. Um, in high school, I worked at Chick-fil-A and my favorite part was drive through Love the drive through window. And there were a couple of times where I got to see something that was pretty cool, kind of made my day. Someone would pay for the meal of the car behind them. Maybe you've done that before. And most of the time, it would not, uh, it would just end there. Somebody would say, hey, I'm gonna pay for that car. And then that car would say, thank you. And they would go. But there was a couple of times when I worked there, that one act of kindness of paying it forward would spark a chain reaction. And my record was seven cars just to see. You know, I like had a record. It's like, oh, we got four. Here we go. You know, I'm calling all the workers. Come see. Seven cars was our record. It's interesting how this worked. Somebody would start it. They would initiate that just forgiveness or, or, or that, that good act of, of, of paying someone's debt, paying their, their, for their meal. And then it was just so cool because the next car would come up and I would just sit there and say, hey, your meal is taken or paid for by that car that's pulling out right there. And like that long list of, or that long reaction of seven people, their eyes would just light up and they would say, oh, that's so awesome. Can I pay for the meal behind me? Just ask, I wanna do that. And I would say, absolutely. And they would just hand me their card or their cash and they would pay for that meal. It's interesting. I had six cars that did that in succession. Hey, your meal's been taken care of. Your debt's been paid. Um, it, and then they would just light up and say, I want to pay for the next person. I just want to pay it forward. But the seventh time, this woman comes to the window. She's by herself. She's got one meal, about seven bucks. I say, hey, that car that's pulling out just paid for your meal. And she responded differently than all the other cars. And she asked a different question. She didn't say, oh, cool, I want to pay for the next meal. She said, how much is the total of the car behind me? <laughs> I looked out the window. Her little Dodge Neon was being enveloped by a large Tahoe. Rang up the next order. 80 bucks. People had already had some drink carriers ready to go for us. 
She asked a fundamentally different question than the other people. She didn't say, I want to pay for them. She said, how much is it going to cost me? I told her the price. She said, never mind. And she just drove away. How do you forgive other people? And what's the question you ask in response to the gospel? Is it, thank you, Jesus, for the blood. I want to show that kindness and forgiveness to somebody else. Or is it, how much is it going to cost me? Jesus uses a parable in the gospels of a man who was forgiven of a lot and of a little. And we see just this uh, horrible reaction to the grace of God, of someone actually punishing someone for the grace, same grace they had been shown in church. We are not in a position to do spiritual accounting to ask how much will it cost me to forgive others. There's the gospel and there's the work of Christ. And this is why he says, you forgive others just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Not asking how much is this gonna cost me. It may cost your pride, it may cost your comfort. Church, we do it as a reaction unto Christ because he did it for us. Aren't you so glad that the father didn't say to the son, go die for those people, and him like, that's gonna cost me too much. Jesus didn't have that attitude toward me. He came, he emptied himself, took on the form of a servant. He died, he rose again. And at great cost, Christ forgave you. And Paul says the way we live out the new man is to respond to his forgiveness by showing the same to each other. The church, I, I, I plead with you and I ask you, let's live out the new man. Let's live out this way. Not just as a checklist of all these different things I've got to do. Well, I've got to be truthful. I've got to be faithful. I've got to be forgiving. But to say, Christ has done so much for me. I want to do that for somebody else. And as we do this church, we are living out the new man and we are living in sanctified be forgiving. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this time. Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord, that we see just the profile of the new man. God, and we recognize we are inadequate in our own power to show this kind of forgiveness. But Father, I pray we would fix our eyes on the cross and what you've done for us, God, and it would just remind us, Lord, I want to forgive other people. I want to show that grace to others because of the grace you have shown me. Lord, you are so faithful. You are so good. God, we thank you for the cross. Lord, I pray um, that you would be glorified in every season of our church. In Jesus' name, amen.